Dave's showing us his willy. All this and more on This Week in Retro. High-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. As easy as Lotus 123. More mad marbles. Jet Set Gets Reset with Pet Project. All this and more coming up on the show today in This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello, chaps. How are we all doing this week? I'm great, thanks, Neil. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. I met a legend this weekend. Who? A legend who goes by the name of Pajaco6502, <gasps> regular contributor and listener to the show. Hello, Paul. Uh, <laughs> he's pretty much the scriptwriter, isn't he? <laughs> he is. He is. It was lovely to meet him. Um, it was one of those situations that I often have when I have visitors to the cave, which is um, I meet someone, I know their their real name, have a lovely time with them, and then a bit later go, oh, <laughs> that's who that was, because you don't make the link between the Twitter handle or the Discord handle yeah. until later. So, um, yeah, I should have said to you, Paul, thank you so much for your contributions. So it was a good weekend. Yeah. How about you, Chris? What have you been up to? Yeah, not too bad. Still read, uh, discovering the C64 for the first time. And my mate Shane lent me this. Last week I had the tape cut and he's lent me the Pi 1541. So essentially an emulator. So it loads games at exactly the same speed as the original disk drive and it could do multi-load disks. So that's really cool to get my head around. Um, and it's also got a incorpor- fast loader on it as well. I was going to say, does it incorporate a fast loader? Because that's yeah, essential with the, the disk drive. Yeah. So you, are you going to get like a 3D printed case for that? To, to put well, this is just on loan. When I get my own, then probably I will. But it's actually got, it's got a series of buttons on the front and it's got an LCD screen. So you kind of need visibility and access to all of those as well. Um, plugs into the cartridge port funnily enough and then also into the the 1541 uh, port on the back of the c64 as well so yeah. right so it's drawing power from the cartridge port yeah and, and it has a very beeper nice. to uh, mimic the drive sounds as well which is very handy and a drive read light because there are a couple of occasions when not being familiar with how long things should take to load on disc on the c64 i assumed it had crashed um, but the lights were still flickering and yeah that was a godsend so and other than that I mean, Dave, I know you're an Atari ST fan, but I've joined the Atari Club again because I did have one of these back in the day. (laughs) And I've been very naughty. This is actually in a local retro shop and I've picked myself up a boxed Jag. So there's when I spend this much, and I'm not going to say how much, it wasn't overly expensive, but these have gone up in price, as everybody knows. And this is boxed complete, fully working, and I bought a game with it as well. This is going to get taken away by the wife and wrapped up for Christmas. So, yeah. (laughs) So this will probably be the last day it's in my room. (laughs) How nice is it going to be to unwrap that on Christmas Day? That's so cool. Be fantastic. And then I get the joy of reliving. Yeah, exactly. I'll forget that I've got... That kind of thing happens at this time of life, doesn't it? Oh, that's right. I bought something. Um, But yeah, I'll have the joy of rediscovering how poor all the games were. So fantastic. Looking forward to that. (laughs) <laughs> what about yourself dave ones, though, aren't yeah there are a couple um, of good ones yeah go on well a wonderful thing has been submitted to the subreddit by one of our viewers in episode 75 if you remember we talked about the 30th anniversary of a certain ed game and i struggled with the correct pronunciation of it our wonderful viewer um der Eckbeer, der Eckbeer. Well, let's call him Seaman because that's what he does in these video clip. He's here to pronounce it correctly. Hi, this is Simon, live from the Wolfenstein Dam, or in English, Wolfenstein Dam. 
and I just want to tell you how to pronounce Wolfenstein correctly. Uh, it is a very German sounding word for sure. Maybe that's why they picked it for the game. But the Wolfenstein Damm is actually named after Moses Wolfenstein, who was the guy who paid for the synagogue here in Steglitz, uh, district of Berlin. And so the castle, Castle Wolfenstein, or in real German, Schloss Wolfenstein. See you, bye. And there we are, a definitive answer. Thank you very much, Wolfenstein. Now, Chris and Neil, say it properly. Wolfenstein. Beerstein. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> our first story this week comes from user Clara Dweller over on our subreddit. Let's just take a moment, shall we, to appreciate the wonder that is the spreadsheet. And I'm not being facetious here. The spreadsheet was perhaps the first true killer apps. I, I don't think there's even a perhaps in it. It was the first true killer app. Out of all of the apps that you could get on home computers, the prime example being VisiCalc, often quoted as the first killer app on the Apple II, uh, the perfect coming together, a spreadsheet is, of using a computer to its strengths, so speedy calculations being made, making your life genuinely easier, and allowing you to look smart with the boss with your well-formatted tables of figures. And I tell you what, people gripe about automated checkouts in Twitter recently. In fact, I've seen a lot more griping recently about automated checkouts. It seems to be the thing to moan about at the moment. But how many people did the spreadsheet put out of a job when the computer could suddenly do all the number crunching? Wow. Thousands, tens of thousands. It must have had a big impact over the years. For me, uh, when I first used anything spreadsheet-wise for anything other than just simple curiosity when I used a spreadsheet in anger for the first time, it was Microsoft Excel. Um, how about you guys? What would have been the first ever spreadsheet package that you used? I didn't use the version that he's ported, uh, which is the DOS version, but I did use Lotus 1.2.3. I used version 5 and Windows 3.11. And I worked in a signage factory. Uh, my job there was to print off all the labels for all the signages and being um, 18 sometimes and hungover uh, and not concentrating. I did get it wrong a few times. Expensive mistakes for the company if all the signages were automatically out of date. Um, we used old Zebra thermal printers, which had the, the rolls in a, the, the, the labels on a reel. And uh, I know that Mark Fixie's stuff once told me that's what the Doom discs were done as. So at the disc duplication center he worked at, they got the big rolls of labels on with the red Doom logo on it, and he printed the, the text in a zebra printer. Anyway, Lotus123, if you remember, um, uh, I used to do it to use stock control. So we were making around 20,000 sandwiches a day, and I used it to, to count stock usage. So what we started off with, what we came in, what we finished up with. And from there, with a bit of creative thinking, I was able to calculate exactly how much each sandwich cost us to make in raw materials, even allowing for wastage, etc. You know, that's a really good example of um, a use case. And you were 18 years old when you first used it. Awesome. Yeah. Chris, what was your first package, spreadsheet package? I'm trying to think. And actually, funnily enough, I think the first spreadsheet package would have also been Lotus123 because it was, it was at school uh, work experience. Um, did some work experience for MPI, which was National Provincial Insurance, I think. They didn't know what to do with me because I was just high school age. Gave me a Pascal book to read because I said I was into computers. 
never touched Pascal. And then one of the managers who wanted to go out for a long lunch gave me a task to do in a spreadsheet, and I knew they were using the Lotus suite. So yeah, probably was actually Lotus one two three. Excellent. Well, it's interesting that you've both picked Lotus one two three as your first, because um, as Dave touched on in his answer there, this week's story is all about Lotus one two three and a chap by the name of Tavis Ormondy. I hope I'm saying that right, who loves Lotus one two three so much that he's decided Linux or Linux needs a native port of it. Lotus one two three was released in 1983, and it was the VisiCalc killer. So the killer killer app, I guess, putting a stop to the dominance of VisiCalc and bringing not just spreadsheets to us, but also graphical charts and database functionality to the party. So Lotus123 came out in 1983. Linux wasn't a thing until 1991, which means Tavis has ported software to an operating system that didn't even exist when Lotus123 was being used originally, which is kind of neat, I think. I like that. He describes the port as a combination of unlikely discoveries, crazy hacks, and the 90s BBS wares scene, uh, which we'll come on to shortly. Um, Dave, you've told us you, you used Lotus123. What did you move on to from that? Did you move on to Excel, or was there anything in the middle for you? Eventually, we moved on to Excel. Um, I feel that Lotus was the one that everyone used. Everyone had Windows Microsoft Word and Lotus Notes and Lotus123. But I think Excel eventually took over and I think it had all the functionality. But I I can't think of anything that I now use in Excel in my day-to-day -day business that wasn't in Lotus123 in 1995. I may be wrong. I mean, there may be dozens of things that, are, that we now take for granted that weren't there, but it feels as if Lotus123 was the, the kind of the finished article and it's not really changed since then. It's funny, I used uh, VisiCalc on the Apple II when I was restoring it recently. And, you know, of course, there's far more functionality in, in newer uh, modern packages, but it did feel instantly familiar. And you could do all the basics straight out the box on the screen, on a green screen on an Apple II. You know, I could probably do 90% of what I actually do in a spreadsheet using that in the modern day. So um, I can see how powerful and exciting it must have been when it first appeared on the scene. Now, the only reason that this Linux port exists is because of piracy. Now, Tavis started out simply looking for an old compiler for a programming language called LPL, which uh, I think is Linear Programming Language, which was used to create add-ons for Lotus 1.2.3. Tavis wanted to be able to play with add-ons and um, hopefully to link Lotus 1.2.3 to modern data sources because that's his idea of fun and who are we to judge? Well, it turns out nobody kept a copy of the compiler or the software development kit. Lotus was so successful that anyone who actually had it back in the day just assumed this will be around forever. We don't need to keep hold of this. So they just binned it. And so enter the pirates. Can I get some pirate impressions, Yar, please? Yar, there we go. Jeremy Timbers, lad. <laughs> Where's the rum gone? <laughs> if I do a pirate accent too long, I end up in Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I end up in Somerset. I couldn't have hoped for better pirate impressions there. Um, Tavis <laughs> reached out to the world and discovered that there was an old sysop out there from 90s BBS boards who amazingly had taken and still possessed tape backups of old BBS systems. Now, um, I like to think that computers become vintage after a number of years. Of course they do. But um, perhaps this is an example of piracy becoming preservation and um you know after a number of years of use piracy becomes archiving perhaps i don't know 
But this sysop had a copy of uh, the LPL SDK on his backups, which really pleased Tavis. But not only that, he had a copy of Lotus123 for Unix, which had long been considered forever lost. And so using that as his foundation, he took on the task of porting it to Linux. And um, he's documented the whole process really nicely on his website. It's not just a technical story. It's just a nice story to read for anyone um, well, for anyone, really, you don't need to be technical at all to follow it. Just it, it's a nice thing to to, to read. Um, so it's well worth checking out. There's a link to the website in our show notes if you want to go and have a read uh, about his porting adventure. And sorry, I've just been distracted because Gizmo's come in to join me here. She just sat Hello, under Gizmo. my feet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Chris, uh, we've heard Dave's spreadsheet experiences. Tell us a little bit more about yours. Yeah, so obviously the um, Lotus One Two Three experience I've already shared. That's probably the only time I remember specifically using Lotus One Two Three. I certainly remember the wider suite though, Lotus Notes and and especially databases. They just seemed to crop up for years in everything I did. Um, even when I came, well, no, actually, first of all, back in the UK, I worked for a healthcare, and one of the clients came in with this database of you know um, stuff that they wanted us to basically improve and and redo and whatever and that whole thing was on a lotus notes database none of us had any experience in that so we ended up farming that out oh should i say that yeah that's absolutely fine because that company <laughs> doesn't exist anymore um but yeah they just you know They're nobody extradite you nobody wanted to know about it you know um by that period and that would have been the late 90s uh, but then when i came here to perth um the it support uh, job that i ended up with uh, um in around 2005, the entire support database was in a Lotus Notes database, and we were happily still plodding along with that. And then when I eventually moved from there through another job into a job at a college, one of the IT lecturers, I remember having a little sort of um, impromptu meeting with him, and he was convinced that um, we should still be teaching Lotus Notes in, in the college. Uh, this was around 2009, and that perhaps all the learning material should also be stitched stored in the lotus notes database clearly that's just where his career expertise was and he really wanted to sort of hold on to it and drag it in to the modern day but spreadsheets i mean excel you can't get away from excel um i would have started with it at home well also tinkering at college but at home windows 3.1 days i was using excel for fun would you believe to keep track of my laser quest scores because i was that addicted to laser quest um so tracking that and then all the way through to the present day um, in terms of my the role that I do now, we track um, client um, inquiries in one area that I look after, and that's all just done in Excel. And I've got some routines running behind the scenes to plot stats and produce graphs for the monthly report, that kind of thing. Um, nice. But also Google Sheets. Just, yeah, oh, go Google on. Sheets, yeah. yeah I was so, going to say, if I, if, if I were to say to you, x97 l97, would that mean anything to you? Oh, now... Mm, uh, it's probably similar to what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the one in Excel 95 where it opened a Doom Easter egg. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah. So this and was it, in Office 97. Okay. Would open, I thought it was in 95. Um, okay. Yeah. This Well, that one may have been that you described, yeah. but the one that I, I remember was a flight simulator hidden in Excel oh, 97. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, the one, you the would one... fly it. It, it was on. very much like magic carpet style rolling landscapes and you would it would go full screen and you'd fly around with the mouse yeah that's ringing bells yeah, yeah. the one i remember was in 95 and a similar thing i can't remember the exact coordinates but you go down to a certain cell and you put in a certain um formula yeah. and it, it opened up a, a doom 
esque thing that I'm pretty sure was kind of done in like ASCII. But anyway, and you had to walk across this chasm, and if you got to the other side, then you got to see a scrolling um, thing of the developer names for Excel. That's where they they hid their names. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, Google Sheets. I use Google Sheets um, to track my retro computer spending habits and make sure they don't get out of control. So yeah, I don't. I don't track mine because I I don't want to know. Yeah, it's it's not just the spending, although that's a big part of it because I sort of try and attribute myself a certain amount of pocket money um, to sort of rein it in a little bit. Um, But um, it's also to keep track of the games that I want to recollect and I don't yet have. And the great thing about Google Sheets is, of course, you can just pull out your phone and bang. I know you can do the same thing in Excel with Office in the cloud and stuff, but I don't know. I just find it easier in Google Sheets bang open it up if i'm you know out and about and somebody's selling me a game have i already got that i can quickly check it out so it's very useful yeah do check out the show notes to for the link to this week's story and um I, yeah I, having said what i said earlier about piracy becoming preservation and archiving let's try and put a number on it after how many years would you say piracy becomes preservation Oof. two weeks <laughs> immediately um, <laughs> I speak I, I, with, I, with someone who's had no knowledge of piracy. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because you could say 15 years, you could say 20 years. But then if you think about something like, I don't know, World of Warcraft, mm. it's been around for about 17 years and it's still being yeah. played. So it's still current. Yeah. So hard to say, um, isn't it? At what point do we get away with admitting it? Mm. Yeah, it- I guess that's the question. When does it does it become abandonware? That's we know that's not a real thing, but <laughs> I guess it only becomes abandonware when copyright expires, technically. Or yeah, if, yeah, yeah which is, if it's we'll all be released. dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you we mentioned go. Something. You mentioned something. You mentioned Gizmo. How's her little paw? Is her she okay paw now? is fine. She's bounding up and down the stairs on what was her bad foot. I think she had a a, a bee sting or something. She she likes to get things under her back leg and like stomp on them. I don't know if Johnny does that. So she's obviously stomped on something and got stung, and then she felt sorry for herself for a few days, and now she's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, Fantastic. pirates, we salute you. Can I get a three man salute? There we go. Come on, Chris. No. <laughs> Okay, well, it's interesting that we were just talking about piracy and when it stops becoming piracy because, um, as you guys know, I'm I'm trying to recollect the games that I had in the past and I'm trying to collect them in the same form that I had them. So if I had the original big box, then I want the big box. But if I had the original budget version, then I want the budget version. So it doesn't bother me that my copy of Marble Madness is actually in this form, which is a pirated disc with my own handwriting on it because that's how I had it back in the day. It was one of the first Amiga games I ever got hold of a pirate copy of. Most of my games were legit, but yeah, Marble Madness, I must confess, never actually paid for. So sorry to the developers. Um, But also I never even saw it in the arcade. I never saw it in the wild. I don't actually recall seeing it. I know this is no excuse, but I don't recall seeing it for sale, for sale in the shops either. Um, Obviously, it was an arcade machine originally by Atari in 1984, and it came out on the Amiga in 1986. So maybe that's why I didn't see it in the shop, because I didn't jump into the Amiga until 1989. Um, so it was way well past its use date. There we go. It, 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 that's preservation. It's gone. We, we, we put a date on it. It's three years, Neil. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I was certainly never aware that there was a sequel 
to Marble Madness. So Marble Madness, if you haven't played it, it's an isometric view game. Um, the game scrolls down towards the player, if I can put it that way, and you control a marble that travels down elevated ramps. Um, and it's a race against time, uh, and you have to avoid falling off the edge of the ramps that you're on. Uh, and you also have to avoid obstacles and enemies and that kind of thing. It's simple, but it's fun. It's just a nice, simple game um, that's really easy to get into. Is there anyone who hasn't played Marble Madness? Oh, good question. Surely they must have. <laughs> yeah, well, all, all three of us clearly have then. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone must have, must have played Marble Madness at some point. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to have played it in an arcade uh, because it regularly features at the Play Expo events so they bring one along and um have you played it since chris on an arcade because no. you said you didn't play it back in the day oh, no. it, it, it's a really good arcade experience you've really got to like slap that trackball really get it going and nice change direction quickly so yeah if you ever get the chance you've got to yeah i think i do need to it's a bit like asteroids i've never i have to confess i've never played asteroids in the arcade so not asteroids what am i talking about missile command sorry so i've never played missile command with a trackball and Clearly, you know, once you realize it should be played with a trackball, it makes sense and you want to play it that way because clearly that's actually going to be easier than a keyboard or joystick. So, and the same I think is true with Marble Madness, but I was used to playing it with joystick. I usually opted for, I think you could play it with mouse and trackball on the Amiga as well, but I certainly never did, always opted for the joystick. Um, but yeah, so this mysterious sequel, there was a sequel. Um, and so this is all according to, uh, a story by Kyle Orland on Ars Technica. I'm sticking to that pronunciation. Um, so Atari essentially released a prototype of what they called Marble Man. So that was the name for the sequel in 1991. So quite a few years after the original. And it was designed by Bob Flanagan. And they just basically released prototypes, so test cabinets to gauge the public perception of the game. And it was a three-player game this time, whereas the original was one or two players. It was trackball controlled, same as the original. Had 17 levels, more enemies, including things like animated trolls and things like that. In the original, everything kind of felt like it fitted with the marble theme. Nothing really felt outside that. Whereas this, they sort of pushed the boundaries a little bit and had these animated characters running about the place. Um, there was more variety to the levels and the style of levels. And there was even a character animation for the protagonist, which is a ball in in the fact that it would turn into this marble man superhero character when it crossed the finish line and shout out marble man as a sort of digitized voice sound effect um initial testing was apparently very poor and what they thought was that things had moved on it was sitting in arcades next to things like street fighter 2 at this point and the trackball they reckoned was putting off the punters as well as the cheesy superhero animations and, and the marble man sounds and all of that kind of stuff. So they released another prototype. So again, still didn't get past prototype stage and they simply called it marble madness two and they ditched the trackballs and they replaced them with joysticks. So see previous conversation, this kind of game needs to be played with a trackball. They replaced it with joysticks and bar buttons instead. And, but they did also get rid of the annoying character animations. The results, funnily enough, were the same and the plans to release it were eventually scrapped and it disappeared into obscurity. Apart from apparently there are still some test cabs around. So I don't know if at any of the expos that you guys have been to, you've seen a Marble Man 2, uh, sorry, a Marble, Marble Madness 2 um, or a Marble Man 
arcade cab. Marble man, he can't, he can't stop himself. Marble man, it's, yes, it's in there. It's in your. your did I say that wrong up, up above? So <laughs> the first prototype was Marble Man. I might have said that wrong actually. So the original prototype was Marble Man, and then they re-released a prototype as Marble Madness Two. That's what right. I meant to say. Okay. Yeah. So no, I've never seen a prototype yeah. uh, cab or Marble Man out in the wild. No. Okay. No, never. Apparently, apparently they're out there, um, but you, you, you'd have to be very lucky to come across one and play it. Until now, so a ROM has been leaked by a guy lovingly named by his parents to as um, Dank two hundred seven nine. Pretty sure that's not his real name. Um, in fact, nobody knows who he is. He's just sort of you know kept himself to himself. But it, the ROM's already uh, started spreading through the internet. And it's been verified as being legit. It appears to be the, I think I'm right in saying, the second version of the prototype ROM, and it doesn't have trackball support. But work's already been done in MAME to make it playable, so you can actually get hold of it and give it a go in MAME. So, yeah, what about you guys? In terms of Marble Madness, we all agreed that we've all played it. What do you remember of it? Well, Marble Madness is the reason I always wanted a trackball. It really is. Mm. It always looked like such a fun game, even in the screenshots before I got to play it. It just had a lovely art style. And I found myself as a teenager working in a museum, a dinosaur museum. I think we've mentioned that in a previous show. And the exhibits in the museum, one of them used an Atari trackball. I think it was an Atari 2600 trackball attached to an Amiga 500 running an Amos program um so i do remember when i was working on a saturday sunday one weekend i i I borrowed the trackball i took it home from the museum and plugged it in for a quick game of marble madness and you know it transformed the game is i i was doing it was i doing it through mame at that point no I, i don't think i was i can't remember what platform i played it on with that but it did transform the game and it was it was much more like the arcade using a trackball um, and then of course you got the music which will forever be an earworm in my head you know that just on loop oh it's, it's great and, and the sound effects and the animations it's just such a nicely made game um, mm. and it converted well to other 68,000 based machines as well because that's what the arcade was based on so lots of good ports um, when I built my first MAME cabinet around 2000, 2001, I had to have a trackball for that purpose. So I put that in the middle. I used something called an OptiPack and I had a an arcade quality trackball so I could really smash it around. Um, really enjoyed that. But even long before I got my hands on Marble Madness in any form, uh, I would have been playing a similar kind of isometric puzzly assault course because that's kind of what the game is with a game called Spin Dizzy, published by Electric Dreams on my Amstrad CPC. Of course, that was inspired by Marble Madness. It came later, but it was the first of that type of game that I got to play. So I should uh, definitely go back and play that again soon, yeah. Yeah, for myself, like I've already said, I played the original on the Amiga, and I don't remember playing it in any other format. But the the weird thing is, which probably explains why I ended up with it as a pirate copy, if I had have seen it in the shop and looked at the box art and the screenshots on the back, I doubt if I'd have shelled out my pocket money for it. It's not the sort of game that would have grabbed my attention and I'd have found exciting to buy. Yeah. It's quite an abstract thing to look at, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, there we go. And Dave's holding up a copy um, for the podcast listeners. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, what's that got on it? I can't see because when we're recording, it's a blurry view, but it's some um, cartoony graphics. It has a picture of some marbles. Yeah. The words Marble Madness. It says... Um, Marble Madness construction set because the 
that the port to the CPC they decided to enhance it by adding a construction set to it, oh, so you, that you would could have been create cool. your own. Yeah, Melbourne House. I think we had nothing to do with Australia. A bit like you. <laughs> Fake. Oh, nice, nice one. Yeah, I'll pay that. <laughs> yeah, that was good. But yeah, I, mean, well, I do like a good construction kit though, so maybe that would have got me. But yeah, I don't think I'd have probably even picked it up off the shelf. And same if I had seen it in the arcade, I doubt if it would have, you know, won any of my coins. Unless maybe if I'd seen somebody else playing it and seen them slapping the ball around and seeing how much fun they were having on the screen maybe then that would have um, grabbed my attention. But when you do get into it, and this is the weird thing, it's not a game I would have bought, but it is a game I enjoyed playing when I did get my hands on it through the pirate copy. So yeah, I can't really justify my my pirate endeavors because it is, it's a fun, simple, it's a quirky game. And there is something therapeutic about controlling a marble down a ramp. And I say that not just in the game, but even in real life. I remember when my boys were a lot younger and we got one of those marble ramps. You set it up, you set the course out and to dictate where this marble goes in, in real life. I don't know. I find that fun and therapeutic. What do you think, Dave? Uh, therapeutic um <laughs> it's not therapeutic for me it was frustrated and frantic the the arcade game and, and neil neil has touched on this already the arcade game had the trackball and it wasn't like you would see a trackball in your uh, your school where you, you touched it gently you were flapping that thing about it was going all over the place it was frantic it was desperate the marble was had momentum you had to try and get it to stop what it was so it was it wasn't therapeutic it was a great game though Hmm. Um, but what made it for me was the pokey sound chip on the original coin-op, um, which, which I prefer to the SID sound, um, and people will hate me for that. There'll be comments. Um, I had it on my, I had the game in the CPC and it didn't catch me in the same way. Hmm. Uh, and of course the lack of the trackball makes a big difference as well. Uh, and Spin Dizzy, I played that as well. Just like Neil mentioned, Spin Dizzy, I, I think was a better home micro take on Marvel Madness. So, um, Unless I'm an idiot, there's no Atari System 1 or Atari System 2 for Mr. Yet. So that's Indiana Jones, Paperboy, 720, Super Sprint, APB, and of course, Marble Madness, but not Marble Madness 2 because reading up in what Mame Hayes said about it, it's totally different hardware. Mm. So that's a big one that's miss missing from Mr. at the moment. Um, and when it comes out on Mr., um, Atari System 1 and 2 for Marble Madness, am I going to need to buy a trackball? Mm, interesting um mm. of all those games you've listed they're all you know great games but paperboy is sorry uh 720 720 was one i really couldn't get on with with the trackball i didn't feel weird. that enhanced the game it, it had a weird control to it and I, yeah. I, I i can't remember what it is but i remember a podcast listened to flack jack flack um rob o'hara he talks about which arcade machines he likes to buy and own Mm -hmm. And it's ones with unusual controls because you can't emulate those. They're unique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's Paperboy was the handlebars. But yeah. yeah, 720 was was the trackball. Oh, never could get on with it. And then, of course, when you try and translate that into MAME to joystick, just never quite gels, does it? But it's a lovely mm. game to look at. Uh, and the arcade had the boom box at the top of the marquee. Always loved that. Yeah. That's the skateboarding yeah. anyway, I'm game. Anyway, going off topic. 720. That's yeah. the skateboarding game, yeah, yeah where yeah. the bees chase you. But even like Super Sprint, am I right in saying, I mean, yes, it had the steering wheel, but isn't that the one where you essentially span the steering wheel stupidly fast to go around the corners? Or at least that's how I saw people were, playing it. Yeah. You were trying to turn these corners that were impossibly tight and you were going back in yourself. Yeah. So yeah, you were doing that. But again, I added to it and it, it's it's not yeah. something, maybe Neil's hitting 
creating something earlier on. It's not something we see with emulation. We, if I've got my mister out, I don't slap it about like that. I don't mistreat my stuff like you did in the arcade because in the mm. arcade, you paid the money and that was it. It wasn't your machine. Yeah, that's true. So there's more details about the history of the prototype in the story on Ars Technica and a link to a video, in fact, of the original arcade prototype um, being played. So do have a read and have a look at the video from the original source. And thanks again to Projeco6502 for contributing to the show and by way of bringing this story to our attention in the subreddit. My story this week is on Jet Set Willy, and it was submitted by me, uh, I submitted it. I'm not ashamed of it. I'll keep submitting stories. And if they do get enough community interest, they could get picked. So feel free to go to the subreddit. if you, Even if you don't have something to submit, have a look through what other people have submitted. Hit the little up arrow. If there's something you want us to talk about, hit the up arrow. The more um, upvotes it gets, the more likely we are to pick the story. And this was one that got a few upvotes. So a guy by the name of CPL Games put a tweet out last week and he's doing a fan remake of Jet Set Willy but the key difference is that it's free scrolling and it's not a room by room remake so the original Jet Set Willy is a seminal UK game originally on the ZX Spectrum but appearing on nearly every micro you could buy in the early and mid 80s it's a difficult game and it has fixed length jumps so once you start the jump, you know exactly where you land. You can't change it, which I know is completely out of fashion these days. Um, it's a sequel to Manic Miner, which everybody should play in the Amiga to see how to make a truly awful game. Um, and now that Miner Willie is rich, he's bought a huge mansion. He's had a big party and he just wants to crash out in bed. But his angry housekeeper, Maria, not his wife, as people thought it was, but his angry housekeeper, Maria, won't let him until he's tidied up the mansion, which means collecting every single item. So CPL has created a remake in Game Maker Studio 2 on the PC. But the big deal is that instead of each screen being its own separate thing, the entire mansion is now one big screen that you move around in. So there's no more screen changes, it just scrolls. And on the gameplay video he's made, about two minutes in, it zooms right out from just the screen he's in, and you can see the entire mansion, and you can see all the monsters moving in uh, around the mansion at the same time, and it, it's amazing, probably because I'm used to it from playing it as a kid. Now, Neil, you must have had this in your 464. Do you remember it? Of course, everyone had to have this on their 8-bit micros. And the way you just described that zoomed out, it kind of reminds me of when you used to buy the magazine and they'd have all the screens mapped, zoomed out to try and help you in the in the cheats and the help section. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd loved to see that. And yes, of course, I had it. It was an immensely frustrating game. Um, the the screens that always get to me you're only four screens in when you get to that screen where you turn into a flying pig and there's about 10 enemies going up and down the screen and you've just got to time those jumps perfectly to get across and, and pick up the the item whatever the item is in that screen i can't remember now but it's just so frustrating and there's that kind of pew sound every time you get hit by an enemy and sometimes you can get hit by an enemy and then you'll get, you, you know, you'll immediately, as soon as you respawn, get hit by an enemy again. And, and all of your lives go really quickly. Ah, everyone's been frustrated by that, I think, that's played it. And then after the pig screen, you've got this other screen where there's a saw coming up and down out of the water in the floor. And you've got to get pixel perfect jumps through these three steps. You're all nodding. So you've all been there and felt the frustration there. Um, yeah, it's it's 
a beautiful and a horrible game all at once is how I would describe it. And if somebody could speed run Jet Set Willy on Twitch for me, I would have immense respect for them. You know, never mind GoldenEye, all these other games people like to speed run. Show me a pixel perfect speed run of Jet Set Willy. And as far as I'm concerned, you're the greatest gamer that's ever lived. I'd love to see that. Um, but this weekend, so yes, I had it on the 464. And in the cave, I often put Jet Set Willy on the 464. No, I put it on the Spectrum. I put Manic Miner on the 464. So I have Jet Set Willy on the Spectrum. There you go. Dave's holding up the box there, which is like a gurning telephone on Manic Miner. <laughs> and Jet Set Willy is Minor Willy with his head down the toilet. <laughs> I don't know who made that artwork. And if they did artwork for any other games, I'd be interested it's to know. It's a little bit grotesque, isn't it? Mm, it is a little bit. So um, I put Jet Set Willy on the Spectrum this weekend. And I didn't realize that the copy... Um, that we loaded had a trainer on it which removed the enemies so i just loaded the game walked away dave was just holding up the copy protection code chart there which was another annoyance of the game um, (laughs) because it was so small and you had to look up the four colors to get into the game so i'd loaded the game this weekend at the cave not knowing the trainer was enabled and i put up the chalkboard for the high score challenge and it was about four hours into the day when someone came up to me and said um, it was a Canadian chap, John. He said, Neil, um, what's the point of Jet Set Willy? Because I've scored like seven points and I'm getting more and more lives. And people say it's hard. So I went over and had a look and it's like, oh yeah, there's no enemies whatsoever in the game. You're just, you're just, <laughs> Maria wasn't even there. You're just walking around the mansion collecting things, you know, and that was his first ever experience of oh, Jet no. Set Willy. He must have thought these English gamers, like, come on, why are they complaining that this game is so hard? <laughs> So an important thing you mentioned there is is the frustrating thing where you you die and you get that instant zap sound, which is um, really well done. But the game then places you back on the screen where you entered, which if it happens to be where an enemy loads, you get killed again and again and again, you lose all your lives. Um, that has been fixed for this. Um, he has, CPL has carefully selected spawn points so if you do die you, you get placed in a special place so that doesn't happen um now i particularly loved exploring in this game uh, i would set out with a goal of going out into space and exploring the rooms there or sometimes going elsewhere the original spectrum game from 1984 didn't make it until the amstrad until 1985 which back then was a long long time i know that games probably these days maybe don't get their first patch until a year later um but when it did make it to the the cpc they added 40 extra rooms on top of the original 64 and then ported that back to the spectrum as jet set willy the final frontier or sometimes known as jet set willy 2 so i I, i'm not sure if the 64 was enough for me to to explore the same way that the the 100 uh, 104 was um the extra stuff in space and so on was added to the the amstrad version but i i loved exploring i just loved setting out to go and try and get somewhere different um the matthew smith's room names and so on were all really creative they they, they for something simple that you really felt as if you're going somewhere um i'd never had any delusions about collecting all the items to, to solve the game you had to get every single item and then bring it back to your bedroom to maria but it was i, I and Neil talks about someone doing a pixel perfect speedrun of Jet Set Really, he 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 means it's difficult. Um, I'd never had any delusions about doing that. It was all about exploring the the, the game for me, uh, and I suppose maybe I treated it more as a bit of an adventure game. Now, Chris, you're a Spectrum fan. Have you even heard of one of the most famous Spectrum games <laughs> of all time, 
or maybe even played it. There's always a rib and a poke, isn't there? Yeah, <laughs> which is all, all all well and good. Um, but yeah, the weird thing for me is when somebody says Jet Set Willy, what I actually see in my head is Manic Miner, which is forgivable. Look, you know, it's it's a sequel um, to Manic Miner. And the graphics are, are so similar. They've used the same sprites. They've used the same enemies. What is it with these toilets? What What's that about? <laughs> Whose idea was it to have a toilet sort of, you know, in the corner of the levels and that kind of thing? But it, comparing level screenshots, it's definitely Manic Miner that I remember. If I did play Jet Set Willie, it would have been very briefly, perhaps at school, um, sort of thing that they'd, you know, load up um, for a bit of a treat or in a shop. I actually, funnily enough, as when um, Neil held up that... Um, uh, sorry, Dave held up the, the box art just now. It's the Jet Set Willy box art that I hold more memories of. That certainly stands out in my mind. But in terms of the game and the game levels, it's certainly Manic Miner that I've played more of. So, yeah, more memories of that. And also, I don't know why, but again, when you name these two games, the game that springs into mind for me as well is Alvida Zane Monty. Um, similar platformer. Alvida Zane. Alvida Zane. Shut up. Um <laughs> Um, but yeah, similar style platformer, very different style of graphics, but I spent hours and hours in Alfredo Zay Monte, not as much in Manic Miner and certainly hardly any time at all in Jet Set Willy. Sorry, guys. Fair enough. <laughs> so the um, the remake is not going to be on the Spectrum or any of our other micros, and it's not even finished, and it's not official, and it's not licensed, but all the same, I am really excited about it. Um, he is looking to base the music on the CPC version as well, so I really hope he finishes it. And when it is finished, maybe I will make a serious attempt to complete Jet Set Willy. Um, maybe on the, the 64 screens I could do it, who knows. I also um, sent him out a little tweet, and I, I've done a, it's ended up being almost a, a mini interview with him. Um, so I, I've asked him a few questions and he his answers. So I asked him, which platform did he play it on? And he said he had it on the, the MSX machine, and he did finish it which is incredible. Wow. And he says they did get the sequel, which was where he came across the Amprad CPC music because the Amprad CPC music was ported to the MSX machine. He says the, the sense of exploration and being able to choose which way to go was pretty revolutionary at the time. Um, so maybe that's why I made it scroll when I rebuilt it. That's how I imagined it in my head as a single flowing space. And I think he's right. I mean, it, it was essentially ma Manic Minor, uh, but you chose which, which rooms to go, which order to do them in. I asked him if he's going to finish the project, and he says yes. He says all the rooms and items are in place, and I've been able to test a full run of the game and collect everything. To finish, I need to wrap up the game with a title screen and the toilet run end sequence, which I won't spoil it for anyone who's not seen it. I also need the Monty Python foot game over screen. The, when you lost all your lives, you had the Monty Python foot coming down to crush you. Then add music, and it's pretty much done. I asked him, do you have any kind of estimate on when it will be finished? And he said, that's the much bigger question here, I'm guessing. It might be a while yet. This is a spare time hobby project. I'm a freelancer and a family man, and I have a lot going on in the coming months, which is great that I'm working, but not so great for finishing up Jesse Willie. So I can't really put an estimate on it. What I will say is that the amazing response to the video has pushed it up the priority list. When I have the time, I'll get it done. I asked him if he's sticking to the rooms shown in the videos we've seen or where he will add the final frontier rooms, which is, for me, a space. Um, and he said he's done just Jet Set Willy, but he did have to add a few rooms from Jet Set Willy Final Frontier to get things to line up properly, and even one from Manic Miner. So the original Jet Set Willy obviously wasn't perfect. Um, 
He said once the project is done, if there is demand, he'll work on a Jet Set Willy 2 version. And he, he said there'll be a fair amount to add to the engine, the lifts, the diagonal enemies, transporters, the rocket, the trick switch and the yacht mechanic, the cartography room. And he thinks the, the jumping mechanic is slightly different for Jet Set Willy 2 as well. I, I didn't know that. Um, and I asked him if he has anything he'd like me to say. And he says, just a huge thank you to everyone who sent such kind messages to me on Twitter, which is Twitter, kind messages. It <laughs> happens. Um, it was a first tweet from a new account. And I was expecting it to get maybe 10 or 20 views and perhaps an, oh, that's cool from one or two people. When I woke up the next day to 20,000 views and a huge wage, waves, wage, no wages <laughs> here, a huge wave of positivity, I couldn't believe it. Thanks to Steve Weatherall and Andy Noble for putting up with a barrage of notifications. Andy gave me a key clue in figuring out how the ropes work and why they wouldn't be and they wouldn't be in there without his help. And he says a huge shout out to Matthew Smith is also in order for creating a piece of work which is still so fondly remembered by so many after nearly 40 years. That's an amazing thing to have achieved. And he says, and thanks to you guys for including it in your podcast. If you'd like to go into more detail once I get a thing released, then let me know. And I'm sure if he does and when he does release it, we'll touch back with him. It's time now for our community question of the week. And based on the story of Doom being sold for silly money, what is the retro game that you desire the most and how much would you be willing to pay for it? In addition, have you already paid a hefty sum to acquire a special game? Regrets? Or are you happy that you did it? Dave, I know that uh, you're an avid game collector. Do you want to start us off before we get on to the community answers? Yeah. Like you are, Neil, I am a big Ultima fan. So I had to have the original Ultima one. Dave, um, it's been great having you as a host on the show, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> fire you now for making me so jealous, holding up a boxed copy of Ultima one. For which system? Is it the Apple? This is for the... I think this is for is this for the Apple II or the IBM PC? I'll find out. It is a and mystery. And this is an original. This isn't a reprint, a reproduction, or anything like that. So this is the re-release. So when when Ultima first came out, it, it, it hardly sold any copies. It wasn't too popular. Uh, it was popular enough, but the, the the whole market wasn't it wasn't very big at all. And by the time they got to Ultima Three, they re-released it. So this is the re-release of Ultima One. I say re-release as it is the Apple Two. I say re-release, but it's um, this will be the early eighties still. Um, yeah. So this is this is um, still very rare, um, still very valuable. And um, dare I ask, how much did you pay for this? Yes, you can ask. Um, you can ask me how much I paid for it, yeah. Um, <laughs> I paid £205 for it. Ouch. And how long ago was this? This was only a few months ago. This was only maybe three months oh, ago. Oh, okay. So um, that is probably a good deal, actually, for a game yeah. that's so collectible and so yeah. rare. Um, I, I think I think the price has come down slightly on, on games. Really? In the mm, past mm. Uh, nine months or so since, since uh, the restrictions ended and mm. people have cleared out their, their lofts already i think price have come down slightly but it's a lot of money but i wouldn't have it any other i wouldn't i would never get hold of this game otherwise yeah a real mm. jewel in, in the crown i think for your collection definitely um for me um 
I was looking through my eBay listings. Unfortunately, eBay only lets you go back a couple of years. Yeah. I've been on there for a decade, you know, over a decade. I would love to go back and see, but well, or maybe I wouldn't. But in the la in most recent years, the most I've spent on a game is um, the Commodore sixty four games on a CD pack, which uh, I did an episode on some time back, and that's a very rare thing. Um, I think it came over. I got it from Germany. I paid £125 for that pack. So that's 10 Commodore 64 games on a CD, all boxed up with an adapter to plug your CD player into the C64 and load the games. I can kind of justify it by saying, well, I made a video on it and that in turn made some revenue, which would have taken the edge off the cost of it. And it's now in a display cabinet for people to enjoy when they come and visit the cave. But um, have I spent more than that on a game? I don't think I have. My buying habits tend to be around the 10 to 15 pound price tag mm. on eBay. Mm. That's where the majority of my spending goes. It'll have to be something pretty special to get into three figures um, or something I can make an episode on. But there you go. That, those are my eBay findings. This is my most expensive one to date. And it's just Shadow of the Beast 2 long box, um, which cost me, this was actually local. So when I say local, it was over in the Eastern States in Australia, but around 75 pounds. Uh, plus postage so I'm, I'm a bit like you neil I, I don't like to spend too much when i'm buying games but now i've realized now that i've proudly got my atari jaguar i think the good times are over because when i look at the price of almost any atari jaguar game they kind of start at 50 pounds and then just go north from there so yeah it's gonna go yeah, does shadow of the beast 2 have any have any feelies in the box because i know the first one had a t-shirt with it um, funnily enough, I've also got number one long box, which I got for 50 quid and, but that's waiting for me at my parents' house in the UK. So I'll collect that later this year, but neither of the them have of that, the t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. It's just in, um, <laughs> no frigging way you're going to find out bill. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, all this has got, and all the other one has got is just the discs and the manual. Um, okay. It's not missing it. anything though. That's just how it came. Was it? Well, no, but I mean, part of the question was, do you have any regrets? The shadow of the beast copy, my dad actually unboxed it for me over skype and um both him and my mum were saying this is brand new <laughs> and of course they didn't quite comprehend this is a very old game that i've bought off ebay when i bought this mm. one which is from a seller over east uh, over here it was advertised as um in as new condition and i mean you won't be able to tell from the footage but it, it really isn't the box has lost its sheen there's some rippling there's a dent in the box and probably the most disappointing, keeping in mind this is the most expensive game I've bought, um, is the fact that um, there's writing on the inside of the lid. It's got the cheat codes. Um, oh, okay. So definitely not as new. And there's a yeah. great big yellow sticker on the front, Chris. Have you have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. But it says T-shirt enclosed, but it's not in the box. Yeah. yeah no T-shirt. I mean. Okay. Yeah, so no it would have come with a T-shirt. In either copy. It would have come with a T-shirt. But when you look at copies of Shadow of the Beast and Shadow of the Beast 2, if they do have the T-shirt, you're talking stupid money. Absolutely stupid yeah. money for a T-shirt yeah. that's going to fall apart the first time you put it through the wash if you're stupid enough to it's wear got, it. It's got, I mean, if it's sitting folded in that box, it's got to be, Yeah. there'll be a permanent crease in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm not sure there's any They're real value to absolutely it. Absolutely stupid um, money. Yeah, I recently saw Longbox Shadow of the Beast uh, on eBay, but it was part of a job lot of other Amiga games. And I thought, well, that could be a bargain to be had here. But clearly a lot of other people saw it and that the price just skyrocketed. And yeah. everyone was just bidding on that because it had Shadow of the Beast. In it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Let's get on now to our listeners' answers. I'll go first. We've got Richard Shears' answer. Hello, Richard uh, and Elmo. And uh, Richard says, my most desired game that I spent the most for was Stunt Car Racer. No, I didn't spend silly money for it. I was patient and managed to get it for the same price that I paid back in the day. And then he's got a little trademark symbol there, back in the day. <laughs> the reason for mentioning this game is because it's the highest price I've paid to um, recollect it. Uh, it was the first game that I played multiplayer. Okay, so that's why he's so fond of this one. He says, I remember my poor friend lugging his wedge-shaped computer and worse, the Philips 8833 monitor over to my house when arriving. I mentioned that maybe he would have been better plugging into my TV. <laughs> uh, that and the fact that we spent numerous evenings laughing and playing this game has meant that it's one that sticks out so clearly. So there you go. He, pay he paid pretty much the original retail price for Stunt Car Racer. It's a great game. You yeah, can't complain too much, game. can you? If, you? if you're paying the price today that it would have been in the shops back in the day, I think that's all right. No, that's it's kind of right. nice. Bit yeah. of parity. Yeah. Chris, and, who have we got next? Yep. So the next one is for Skit. That'll do. Um, and he says, I think I paid £35 for Simpsons Hit and Run on the GameCube. Um, is numerically the most I've paid. However, I bought Gloom on the Amiga when it first came out. It was 19.99, a year's birthday money. So it was much more expensive than a week's beer money I spent on hit and run. That's inflation for you. I like the maths being done. Always comes down to I me, how, how many beers did that cost? That's that's oh, that's the real value. I, I hope a spreadsheet was used to figure that out. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be a chart, a bar chart. And our final viewer answer is from Suspicious Peanut. And I don't know if that means that it's a peanut it's not a peanut it looks like a peanut but suspiciously <laughs> it's not or whether the peanut is acting suspiciously or whether the peanut is is suspicious of us um he says for me it would be panzer dragoon saga for the sega saturn which must be some kind of console <laughs> um i bought it at uh I sorry i found it at a retro games convention for 181 euros and wow. i was willing to pay that now that's 180 euros is must be around 150 pounds so that's that's um that's a lot the booth he says is it called that and yes it's called a booth in the uk it was a bit crowded so i skipped back to pick it up later there was plenty to do at the convention and i bought plenty of games but at the end i forgot all about the game i wanted to buy then covid happened and no more conventions and when i look back at the ebay pricing starting at over 600 euro i think Never mind. <laughs> Love the show. Cheers. John. Oh dear. Nice. Panzer Dragoon. Uh, not Saga, but just Panzer Dragoon is the one I always remember on loop in the shop window when the Sega Saturn came out. So at least here in the UK, it was kind of the game that launched the Sega Saturn, wasn't it? Um, do, you, do you guys remember that being on loop? No? No. I, I wouldn't know a Sega Saturn if it came up and bit me. <laughs> I played on one, but it was Daytona. Just a party, just drinking and playing Daytona. That's my Sega Saturn memories. Well, I'm working on repairing one at the moment. Um, so hopefully I'll get more familiar with the system. I had a friend who had one back in the day and we used to play uh, Nights into Dreams and Daytona and Sega Rally and all that stuff. And, hmm. you know, I was impressed at the time. Um, the standout title for me is Outrun on the Sega Ages compilation pack. It's a fantastic version of Outrun. And I think that's the only reason that I'm trying to repair the Saturn at the moment so I can play my favorite port, my favorite version of Outrun. So we'll get that up and running in the cave soon. Thank you to everyone. 
Oh, go on, Dave. Is the Sega Saturn the one that gets the Fenrir in it? Is that is that the, the upgrade yes. for it? Yeah, that's right, the, so yeah. I, I I have seen that and I've seen it upgraded and actually it, it's it's a great little machine when it's upgraded. So yeah. I'm sorry, Sega. <laughs> the optical drive replacement. Come on, we're on board with Sega after last week when they fully committed to retro. We're on board with them. Let's let's be <laughs> nice on, to nice. Sega. <laughs> So, new question of the week. If you'd like to participate in our question of the week, head over to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. And so it's time for this week's community question of the week, which is, when it comes to productivity applications like Lotus123, which application did you find the hardest to let go of? How long did you cling on to it for? Perhaps it was a music making application, a spreadsheet, an office application, a paint package, could be absolutely anything. Let's have a question that isn't game related this week. So productivity applications that you dug your fingernails into and just couldn't let go of. Tell us the story and tell us what you moved on to next. And was there buyer's remorse when you moved on to that next thing? Or did you think, why the hell did I cling on to that for so long? Answers, please, at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. We're looking forward to your answers. Chris, Dave, thanks for joining me uh, this week for This Week in Retro, and we will catch everyone next week. Thanks for listening. Take Bye-bye. care. Thank you, Neil. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.